Testament reading this morning is, as usual, not what's printed in your liturgy. Uh, It's actually going to be Job 42. So go to Psalms and then flip back. It's the last chapter of Job. I have to pick my Old Testament text on Wednesday, and so by Saturday night, it usually has changed a couple times. I'm learning, I'm growing. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 9 of Job chapter 42. So, of course, this is the conclusion of this long book of Job, which deals with uh, suffering of this man Job and him asking a lot of hard questions, and then finally God revealing himself to Job. And so in Job 42, we have this final response of Job after he's seen God. Job 42, starting in verse 1, hear now God's word. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly." For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted our New Testament prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1, starting in verse 15. We will be concluding John's prologue this morning. We'll be reading verses 15 through 18. I will read verse 15. We won't be focusing on that this morning. Uh, John will pick up this narrative about John the Baptist as we move on in, in his gospel. We'll be focusing on verses 16 through 18. But starting in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we do come to your word this morning, we know that apart from your working in and through this time, God, your word would fall upon deaf ears. And so we ask that you, Lord, by your spirit would open our ears so that we might hear from you, God, through the effective working of your word by your spirit. Help us, or help this time to be effective to us so that we might be strengthened in our faith and that we might see Christ clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Well, as many of you uh, are aware, uh, we just passed an important season in American culture, that is Oscar season. Uh, right? There are many uh, movies that were uh, on the docket, many movies that were being discussed in the broader culture. And last weekend, I actually ended up discussing a couple of these movies with uh, some, of, some friends of mine. We talked about two movies in particular. We were talking about kind of the, you know, why we liked certain aspects of one, why we liked certain aspects of the other. But after a while of talking, we came down to talking about the overall meaning of these two movies, that these two movies had very distinct, very different ways of portraying meaning, of articulating the meaning of the world in which these movies took place. Uh, One of these movies, which may have won an Oscar, uh, essentially said that the world has no meaning, that at the end of the day, there's really nothing that grounds us in this world, and we have to actually define and make meaning for ourselves. And then uh, this other movie on a very you know, opposite end of the spectrum showed that there is true meaning and true value in the things of this world, that even the small mundane things like you know, uh, loving your friends, being kind, caring for other people, that actually has significance and worth, even if the, you know, sometimes it seems like this world is meaningless. And of course, we you know, tended to favor one of these movies rather than the other. I'm sure you can guess which. But of course, it's not just movies that try and give us a certain way of viewing the world, a certain way of finding meaning in this world. We are always constantly doing this in, in our media, right? in, in various religious contexts, in uh, different worldviews, you can call it. We're trying to, in a sense, create, structure, construct a meaning out of the various things that we deal with, the things that we see in this world. And some of these meanings, some of these worldviews are flimsy, they're thin, they don't offer a good grounding, a solid footing to explain all that we experience in this world. Some are better, some are more robust, they can bear the weight of the things that we deal with in this world. And greatly, gratefully for us, we don't have to make sense, we don't have to figure out what the meaning of the world is, we have it clearly presented to us, proclaimed to us in God's word, and in particular this morning, John gives us what the meaning of the world is. John tells us what the only sufficient lens is through which we can understand the world, which we can, through which we can understand God, and through which we can understand ourselves. And so we want to see this lens that John gives us as he concludes his prologue. And so our theme this morning, as we consider these last verses of John's prologue, we see that John, as he concludes his prologue, announces Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the only thing which can truly make sense of the world. As we consider this, consider Jesus as the lens through which we ought to look at the world, I want to take these three verses that we were focusing on, but I actually want to take them in reverse order. Uh, you know, John's, he has this kind of main point, and then he has these two subpoints. but I want to move from the subpoints to his final conclusion in verse 16. So we'll go verse 18, 17, and 16. And as we do so, as we consider these things that John reveals to us and portraying Christ to us, I want to think about our text this morning Instead of under three points, I want to think about it through asking three questions to us this morning. Three questions which get at, you know, what is meaning? How do we find meaning in the world? These really deep, fundamental questions that either we do ask from time to time or questions, at least, that we ought to ask of the world. So the first question that we want to ask this morning as we consider this text is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? This is one of those questions you hear all the time. You've probably asked it yourself many times in your life. Why do bad things happen to good people in this world? And so beginning in verse 18, John tells us this statement, this fact. He says, nobody has ever seen God. 
John, as he's done several times in the prologue, John gives us this very simple yet profound theological truth as he says no one has ever seen God. And what John is saying is this truth that God is unknowable, that we cannot know God. Why is that? Well, we talked about it a little bit last week as we read Exodus 34, right? Remember, Moses wants to see the glory of God and God says, you cannot behold my glory. You can't see me as I am in my, you know, the splendor of my glory. So there's a sense in which we can't know God because we can't approach him. More than this, you know, if we get more theological, we could say we can't see God, we can't know God as he is because God is spirit. He is invisible and we can't see him. We can't see him in our eyes the way we experience the world around us. And of course, most profoundly, we can't see God, we can't know God, because God is transcendent. He is completely beyond our comprehension. He is the creator, we are the creature, and we can't know him as he is. And it doesn't mean we can't know anything about him, but John tells us we can't know him directly. We can't know anything by simply looking at him. We can know things about God, but that is only through God's own self-revelation. We can know things about God only as God chooses to make himself known, only as we see God's works, as we see what he has done in the world around us. So we can know some things about God. And because of this, because we can know some things, we are actually, in fact, all of us are theologians in this sense. We are all seeing what God has done in the world, and we are making sense of it, and we are coming to conclusions about who God is, what he's like. You know, I, am, I have an MDiv, so you know, I'm theologically trained, which basically just means that I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown for four years and then I got a piece of paper. But you know, I'm not the only theologian in the room, right? We are all, even you know, non-believers, everyone in this world, we are theologians. Again, we are trying to make sense of who God is through what we see around us. And yet, of course, even though, as Romans 1 tells us, we know God sufficiently, God has revealed himself sufficiently for us, we know that this knowledge of God and our interpretation of the facts is often and always, in some sense, skewed by sin. So John tells us that we can't know God in a, in a true, you know, in a real sense. We can know him in a true sense in a, in, in because the fact that he has revealed himself to us. But John tells us more than this. John tells us that God has made himself known, but in particularly, uh, particularly he has made himself known in a very singular way. John tells us that Jesus is the one who ultimately makes the Father known. So again, continuing in verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that he has made him known. That word, or well, it's translated in a few words, but where it says that Jesus has made him known, that is the word that we in English, that's where we get our word for exegesis, right? Which in a theological way means to draw something out of a text, right? To, uh, to convey the meaning of a text, to interpret the meaning of something. And John tells us then that Jesus is the way that we, or Jesus, I should say, rather exegetes the Father to us. He makes known the Father to us. He gives meaning to who the Father is. We could say that, according to John, Jesus is the hermeneutical key to our understanding of God. And you know, we want to stress, just as we emphasized last week, it's not just any Christ. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not simply through you know, Jesus walking this earth that we know this, but in particular what John focuses on time and time again is that it is Jesus, the God-man, right? the Word who became flesh, crucified for sinners, that it is this Jesus who makes God known to us. Martin Luther talks about these two ways of knowing God, right? knowing God through what he has revealed to us versus knowing God through his Son, Jesus Christ, and he calls these 
two ways of knowing God, the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. That we can either construct our theology through glory, that is through the things that God has revealed to us in nature and the world around us, and that alone is sufficient for our knowledge of God. Or he contrasts that with a different type of theology, the theology of the cross, where we can only and truly know God through what Jesus has done, through what Jesus has accomplished by looking at Christ crucified. And these two theologies come to a head. We can see them play out and how effective they are when we come to that question of suffering, that question that we started with, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's why I wanted to, us to consider for a moment Job, as we read this morning, we want to think about Job as he is kind of the, the litmus test, right? He's the test case for suffering that God gives us in his word. And as we, if you've, if you've read through the book, if you're familiar with the storyline, essentially what you have is you have, you know, we have kind of the inside scoop. We see the whole story from God's perspective, what's happening to Job. And yet in Job's experience and in the experience of his friends, they don't have the full picture. They simply have to go off of their experiences, And as they're trying to make sense of what is happening to Job, they come up with some pretty faulty and pretty bad explanations for what's happening to him in his suffering as he loses all that he has. We see things that are essentially akin to what we would call karma, right? That good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and that's just the way that the world works. Or one of his other friends essentially depicts God as this big judge in the sky who's simply watching over the deeds of all of his people, and he judges the guilty, and he you know, blesses the innocent. And that's simply, again, how the way, or, you know, how the world works. In our own time, we add to these interpretations, we can, you know, simply add, uh, say things or, or, or uh, attribute certain things to, uh, you know, positive thinking, right? If you just have the right perspective on the world, if you just have the right mindset, then good things will happen to you. If you're a negative person, negative things are going to happen to you. Even in Job's wife, we see an explanation, a way of making sense of it. Hers is you know, the most depressing, but I think it's the most consistent, where as she sees all the suffering that's happening to her and to her husband, she tells Job you know, outright to reject God, to curse God and die. Right? She, her solution to the problem of suffering is that the world is meaningless, that you just need to curse God and die. So as we walk through the book of Job, as we see him suffering in this life, what we see is that all these explanations that his friends give him They all fail. They all fail to meet, uh, or they they fail to fully explain what is happening in his life. Again, these are thin, these are flimsy explanations. They don't make sense of all that is happening in the world around us. What we need is a thicker conception of of God, a thicker conception of who God is, of what he's doing in the world. And John tells us that that way of seeing God, that way of making sense of the world, only comes through seeing God in Christ crucified. That is the only way we can make sense of what God is doing, especially in the midst of suffering. So often in our own lives as Christians, we too can fall into this thin way of explaining away evil, of explaining this question of suffering in the world. Even, you know, often we can take something as profound as God's own promises and flatten them to mean something they don't really mean. Often when we are, you know, exposed to others who are dealing with great trials, we can take a promise, even a promise as great as the one we so often quote, Romans 8, 28, where God promises that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. The great and beautiful promise in the midst of suffering. Yet so often we can take a promise like this and what we end up meaning as we give this to the person who's in pain is we simply are telling them, well, I know things are hard for you right now, but things are going to get better, right? You know, 
It's almost like that picture of the, the cat hanging on the, the, the clothesline, right? Hang in there. Things are going to get better. Your situation will turn around. We can, again, we can take the deep and true promises of God and we can turn them into these platitudes that are thin, that don't give meaning and explanation to our suffering. And that's because you know, if someone is in the midst of suffering and we tell them it's going to get better, well, what happens if things don't get better? What happens if they continue in their suffering? How does God answer that suffering? Is it just that, hey, you know, hang in there a little bit longer, God's going to make this better? Right? What happens when you are languishing in your career, you're looking for a job, you're looking for a future, and you continue to meet failure and failure and disappointment after disappointment? What happens when you receive that news from the doctor and things don't look good? And someone tells you, just hang in there, things are going to get better. What happens when you're in the midst of a broken relationship with your spouse? Someone says, hang in there, things are going to get better. But again, what if they don't? How do we answer that question? Well, a theology based on our experience, again, it's, it's thin, it doesn't make sense. It suffer, suffering, rather, doesn't make sense with a theology that's just based on our experience. Either, right, if we're in the midst of suffering and we're trying to explain it, we can say, well, maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I haven't done all the good that I can. And maybe I'm being punished. Maybe something bad is happening to me because I've been a bad person. Or, as Job's wife said, maybe there really is no meaning, that all I can do at the end of the day is simply to try and make my own meaning out of the meaninglessness of this life. Yet John wants to focus our attention on Christ because, again, Christ and his cross is the only thing that can make sense of tragedy and suffering in our life. Why? Why is this the case? Why is it that Christ, him, Christ alone can make sense of things? Well, let's ask the question, right? Why do, if, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Then let's ask, what is the worst thing that's ever happened to a good person? What is the worst event in all of human history? Well, John tells us it is Christ and his cross. That is the worst thing that's ever happened. A perfectly good, perfectly holy person who had done no wrong is crucified. He's killed. He's punished by evil and wicked men. And when the world sees this, they look at the work of Christ, they look at the cross, and they see failure, right? Good people don't die on a cross. Good people are successful. They make something of themselves. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about the way people perceive his gospel of Christ crucified, he says, well, you know, it's foolishness to the world. It just doesn't make sense to those who think that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And yet we, as God's people, as those who have heard the message of the cross, have heard it proclaimed and have put our faith in it, we know that this abjectly terrible event, the worst thing that has ever happened in human history, is not a failure, but it is, in fact, the very thing that God uses for our salvation. It's the very thing that God uses to ultimately glorify himself. This is the way that Jesus, just as like we talked about last week, this is the way that Jesus glorified the Father was through dying on a cross for our sin. And it is at the cross that God doesn't fail, but God accomplishes all that he set out to do in this world. As we consider our own suffering, it is, again, it is the cross that gives meaning. It makes sense of what we are going through. Now, certainly suffering is a mystery. We, don't, we can't ever in this life get to the bottom of it. We don't know why certain things are happening to us at certain times. We don't have all the answers but when we look at the cross, what we can say is this. We can say that God can redeem even the worst event of our life. Just as we read Romans 8, 28, right? That God does truly work 
all things for our good and for His glory because God has worked the worst thing in the world for His good and for His glory at the cross. Thinking back, I want to flip to uh, Romans 8 and think further about what Paul says as he gives us this promise. Paul goes on to explain, you know, what is it that can keep us from the love of God? And Paul begins to list things. What is it? Is there anything in this world that can keep us from God's love in Christ? And he says in verse 35, what sh- who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So again, so often in Christian life, we can you know, say that God is working all things to our good, and that means that you, know, you just need to hang in there. Things are going to get better. But Paul says things might actually get a lot worse. You might face persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And yet Paul says even in the midst, not in spite of those things, not because God's going to erase those things, but in the midst of those things, God is doing a work. God is showing his love for you. He's caring for you in the midst of that suffering. Let's think about what's the worst, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen to us in this life? Well, the worst thing that can happen, the thing that we so often fear, most of all, is death. Death is the, the final, right? The final enemy, the final thing that we fear, that we dread. And yet, Paul tells us here, even death itself, as we interpret it through the cross of Christ, even death for Christians is not a failure, but death even turns into a victory, that we conquer this life through death, through dying and being raised with Christ. So again, while the looking at the cross doesn't give us all the answers in this life, it does give us a way of understanding suffering, that God is redeeming our suffering, that our suffering is not meaningless, it's not pointless, that God is currently doing, uh, doing something about it, that he's working it for our good, but also that God has done something about it, that he has sent his son to do something about our suffering. And that answers the question, why do bad things happen to good people. You know, well, that is the question that we so often hear in this world. That's the question we often hear from atheists and those who reject God. Why do bad things happen? There's a second question that we don't ask as often, but we also need to deal with. So our second question this morning is this. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? So moving on from verse 18 back to verse 17, John says this. He says, the law was given through Moses, which may seem a little disorienting to you. We haven't heard about the law up until this point. You might be wondering, you know, why is John bringing up the law at this point in his argument in the prologue? You know, think about what is the law, right? As John introduces the law here, what is the law that he's referring to? Well, he says that the law was given through Moses. And so in particular, he's not talking about the law generally, the moral law that we all hold to, but he's talking about the law given at Mount Sinai, the law which we even read this morning in our confession of sin. And in some way, John is making a comparison here. He's saying the law came through Moses, and then grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's making some sort of comparison or contrast. We want to understand what is he doing by placing these two things side by side. Well, what he's not doing here is he's not saying, well, the law just simply doesn't matter anymore, right? The law was then, but this is now. That's not what he's doing. He's not negating the law. Jesus will many times in his ministry affirm the goodness of the law, affirm the necessity of the law. He's not denigrating the law. He's not putting it down, but he is making a categorical distinction that there is the law and then there is grace and truth and that these two things are different in some way. So again, what is the law? Well, 
John, in affirming the law, he's not, again, he's not negating, he's not getting rid of it, but John is affirming that the law truly is God's revelation, that the law on Mount Sinai came from God itself, or God himself. And yet we want to ask, as God gave the law to his people on Mount Sinai, what was the point? Why did God give the law to his people? Well, primarily, God gave the law to show his people, as he calls them out of Egypt, he wants to show them his righteous standard, what it looks like to follow God, to be his people. He gives them his standard of righteousness. But of course, in doing so, he wasn't simply saying, okay, here's the law, go do it and be on your way. God, in part, gives the law in the context of the Old Covenant to show us, to show his people that we all have fallen short of that law. He wants to show us that we don't meet the standard of that law, that we are all sinners according to his holy law. Again, so often in our conversations about God, it's that first question that we talked about that gets all the attention. Right? Why do bad things happen to good pe- people? And of course, suffering is part of the problem. We want to make sense of suffering. But we fail often to ask the question, what about the suffering that I cause in this world? What about the bad things in this life that I actually do deserve because of my sin? We very rarely ask this question. You know, again, thinking back, you know, why do good things happen to bad people? Why is there any good in my life at all? Why does any blessing come to me in this world? We often take good things for granted. It's the bad things that we struggle with. And yet, as we are faced with the law, as John brings the law to our attention this morning, we see that the law does this very thing. The law asks us that question, why do good things happen to bad people? Again, the law reveals that we are sinners before a holy God, that as uh, Moses gives the law or as God gives the law through Moses at Mount Sinai, what the law was meant to do for God's people was to show them that they could never meet God's righteous standard on their own. The law was meant to show them, to cause them to look forward in history to someone else who would meet the law's requirements on their behalf. It was meant to drive them outside of themselves to look to another who, of course, we know is Christ. And Paul, you know, it's not just God's people at Mount Sinai that are given the law. Paul expands this to all people, every single one of us, Jew and Gentile. Even if we've never heard of the Torah, we know God's law. It's written on our hearts. We know that we have fallen short of it. Thinking back to those two categories, right? The theology of glory and the theology of the cross. When we think about the law, even, through this theology of glory, of just trying to make sense of the world and even making sense of the law as we see it in our lives, when we don't understand the law of God through the law or through the theology of the cross, we actually end up using the law improperly. We actually end up abusing the law. When we see the law without the cross, we end up saying, you know, to that question, right? You know, why do good things happen to bad people? Well, we say, well, I'm not a bad person. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not really a sinner. Sure, you know, even as John, uh, as um, uh, blanking on his name, uh, but the singer says, uh. Uh, you know, I've made, you know I've, I've made mistakes. I've made a few mistakes in my life. I'll think of the reference next time. But, right, you know, I'm not a sinner. I haven't, I haven't harmed anyone. I've just made a few mistakes along the way. But, of course, God's law doesn't leave us to that, you know, that conclusion that God's perfect standard shows us that we have all fallen short. As we think about God's law, according to this theology of glory, according to our experience, we end up measuring our behavior. We measure, end up measuring our Success, not according to God's perfect standard, but according to those around us. Right? All the good that I'm doing in this world, you know, maybe it's not perfect again, but it's better than my neighbors. 
all the good that I'm doing, all the, all the things that I'm doing in this world actually ends up leading us not to despair of ourselves, but actually to puff ourselves up. Again, as we look at the law, apart from the cross, we misuse the law and we even use God's law against him. Frank Sinatra, that's what I was thinking of. Right? Use, you know, as we think of God's law, we use the law, again, as a means to justify ourselves, to acquit ourselves before the tribunal of a holy God. As we think about the law apart from the cross, we use it as a means not to reveal our sin and to drive us to Christ, Christ, but as a means which, by which we justify ourselves, by, by which we excuse our sins before God. And we see this even in John's gospel. Who are Jesus' main opponents in the gospel? As he proclaims the gospel, the good news of salvation, who are his main opponents, those who are, who are fighting against him at every step? Well, it is the religious leaders of the Jews, the very people to whom God's law was given on Mount Sinai. The people of Israel, as they see Jesus, right, they have God's law, they know the traditions of their ancestors, they've been obeying the law, and they, as we are told earlier in John's prologue, they reject Christ. You know, Jesus comes into his own, and his own people reject him. At one point, Jesus, as it comes to a head, Jesus confronts them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you have life. That is, right, if you just follow these things to the T, God will bless you. God will give you a ladder by which you can climb to him. Jesus says, you search the scriptures thinking that in the scriptures you have life. Jesus says, but the scriptures point to me that I am the revelation to which the law was pointing. You think that your law keeping is going to save you while really the point of the law was to show you that you need salvation. And just like the Pharisees so often, we ourselves Instead of seeing the law as something which drives us outside of ourselves, we actually use it to put God in our favor. As we think about the cross again, as John shifts us back to the focus of Christ and Him crucified, the cross does away with this sort of thinking about the law. The way it does this is as we, as we think about sin, as we think about the law and our failure to meet the standards, you know, John is really asking, you know, do you want to know how bad your sin really is? Do you want to know how high God's standard is? really is, right? do you want to take uh, sin as seriously as God takes sin? Well, the way you do that, the way you make sense of sin and the repercussions for sin is, again, you look at the cross. At the cross, we see the demands of the law. We see what the law costs. We see what our sin deserves as we look at the cross, Christ crucified, punished, condemned in our place. Apart from the cross, the law is all we need. The law is that which perfects us, is that which justifies us. And so for those who reject the cross, the cross doesn't make sense. Why would I need Jesus to come and stand in my place when I'm doing a pretty good job at keeping the law on my own? If all I need in this life is moral improvement, is just to get a little bit better, right? to, be, to do more good things, to make myself look a little bit higher in God's eyes, why do I need a Savior? And that again is why Paul in 1 Corinthians, as he preaches the cross, calls it foolishness. He calls it a stumbling block. The cross is foolishness to those who don't recognize that they truly and desperately need a Savior. As John brings up the law and reminds us what the law was, what it is, what its intention was, John does want to affirm that, again, that the law is from God, that the law is God's revelation. But at the same time, John, as he moves on, to present Christ, John affirms that while the law is true, while the law is good, and while the law is God's word to us, the law is not God's final word to us. 
John goes on, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So God's final word to you, as John says, is not the law, is not what you have failed to do in God's eyes. God's final word to you in Christ is grace and truth. That at the cross, again, God has given you what you do not deserve. That bad things have not happened to, uh, uh, to good people. That, uh, or I should say that the good things that we think we ought to deserve did not come to us because we deserve them. God has not given us what we deserve, but He has given us His grace. The cross then puts an end to our striving, trying to make ourselves good enough to receive from God. And that is because at the event of the cross, as Christ dies for our sins, as Christ is put to death and bears the brunt of God's wrath, as not just Christ that died, but it is us, it is God's people who have died, that a death has occurred at the cross, that you have died, as Paul says in Romans Six, that you have died and you have been raised up with Christ. And so there is no more striving to fulfill the law because you have died in Christ. He has accomplished the law for us. Just as we read last Sunday evening, that is why Paul can go on to say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So again, asking that question, why do good things happen to bad people like you and I? Well, the simple answer is not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, not because we've strived and gotten it on our own, uh, in our own efforts, or because we've gotten better and better and better, and therefore life is getting better and better and better. But John tells us it is because of God's grace and God's faithfulness that Christ is grace and truth to us, and therefore we get what we do not deserve. So again, recapping these two questions, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people, John then presents us, well, this is a question we don't, I don't think we ever ask, but we ought to ask, and I want to conclude with this morning. Our third question is this, why does grace happen to God's people? Why does grace happen to God's people? So again, as we've been moving from 18 to 17, now verse 16, John declares, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. So who is the he from his fullness? Well, it's Jesus. From the fullness of Jesus, we have all received. Who is the we all in this passage? Well, it's, it's we all. It's you all. It's God's people, those who have been made children of God, as John has said previously. Those who have put their faith and their trust in Christ, we have received. And what have we received? John says, grace upon grace. And the imagery here is so beautiful that you know, we can, we, you almost picture a, a fountain, right? That that grace is flowing from Christ, that we receive this unending stream of grace, that Christ through his cross has opened up the seal on God's grace, that it now lavishes, it now pours out upon us as we read in Ephesians. We also see that it is an inexhaustible source of grace, that there's grace after grace after grace, that this fountain never stops flowing to us, that we will always and forever receive and be recipients of God's grace. Yet John wants to emphasize, as he has been emphasizing throughout his prologue, that this grace is not, doesn't come, you know, it's not just a substance, it doesn't just come to us as this thing out there in the world, but John's emphasis time and time again is on the person of Christ, that grace comes through a person. As he says in verse 18, it is knowledge that comes through Christ. Christ reveals God knowledge, that our righteousness comes through a person, through Christ and his righteousness. And now in verse 18, that grace is not a thing, not a concept, but grace comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Going back to 1 Corinthians again, thinking about Paul preaching Christ and Him crucified. This is why Paul can say that as he preaches Christ and Him crucified, that Christ is our wisdom, that He is our righteousness, that He is our sanctification, and that He is our redemption. That Jesus, for both John and Paul, is the source of all and every grace in the life of the believer. So going back to that question, why does grace happen? Why do we receive? Why have we received grace? Well, it's kind of hard to answer that question because grace in in its very definition is undeserved. It is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Martin Luther, as he uh, talks about these these two theologies, the theology of the cross and the theology of glory, he concludes that whole argument in his Heidelberg Disputation with this final summary of all that he's been leading up to that through the theology of the cross, he declares that the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. That the love of God does not find, it doesn't go searching out for lovely things and then take it to himself, but the love of God actually creates in unloving and unlovable people love and grace and beauty, which it did not have before. So that is what God's grace is to us. It is God's one-way love to unlovable people. That God, we're, we see, has set His grace upon us, not because of anything we've done, but in eternity, apart from anything we have done, God has set His grace upon us. Before we could know God, before we could know anything about Him, before we could find our way to Him through our thinking, before we knew our plight, before we even knew that we needed a Savior, God sent His Son to be grace for us. And because of this, because God's grace is an ever-flowing fountain that never stops for His people. You cannot out-sin God's grace. The theology of glory says that we like things that are lovable. We seek out those things which are beautiful and we bring them to ourselves. The theology of the cross says that God sets His love on unlovable things and makes them lovely. Of course, we see in John's clear proclamation of the gospel in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, the world is in the sinful, rebellious people who had wanted nothing to do with him, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So what do we do in response to this grace? What is our response? Well, there's nothing we can do. You can't do anything to receive grace. It comes to us freely. It's God's one-way love for us. In addition to this, there's nothing left to do. All that has been done for our salvation has been accomplished in Christ. So what we are left doing is what Paul says, or what John says here, that we simply receive. We are called to simply rest and receive this ever-flowing fountain of God's grace in Christ. So in this life, as there are many things that don't make sense, that are confusing, that are hard, as we suffer in this life, God, John tells us, receive God's grace for you, knowing that He is working out even the worst events of your life for His good or for your good and for His glory. As you struggle with sin, as you fail to meet God's perfect standard time and time again, John says, receive God's grace for you in the forgiveness of the cross. Ultimately, John points us again, as he has done uh, throughout the prologue to Christ. He says, look to Christ and Him crucified to give meaning to every aspect of your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you God, that you have not left us to ourselves, that you've not left us to our own understanding or our own efforts, but that you have sent us a Savior. God, help us to see that all of our lives, or help us to see all of our lives, rather, through the truth 
and the reality of the crucified Christ on our behalf. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.